ahead and grab a seat. Welcome everybody again to Marine Covenant Church. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff as well. And uh, gosh, I love that song. I was, um, I was actually on vacation last week. You, uh, everyone was freezing uh, here. There was snow on Mount Tam. And I, I was in Puerto Vallarta yeah. suffering for Jesus. And, um, and, I'm, and so Michael sends me a song. He says, hey, this is a song that we're going to be doing on Sunday. And I'm listening to the song. And I'm like, I am experiencing this song. I am on a, a lounge chair by a pool overlooking the ocean, having my mango tango. Like, oh my goodness, this is so good. Right? It's just like, and if you've ever been to an all-inclusive, like, I highly recommend it. It's not a good way to, for your diet. It's not a good way to start out Lent, but it is this incredible picture of just abundance, right? It's just nonstop abundance. Oh, it's so good. And it was interesting to think about this song as I was thinking about Lent, which is it's, it's interesting. They don't really kind of jive. But I was thinking about that song because there's so much goodness in God, right? There's so much goodness in God's story that we talk about this all the time as a church, that we want to be warm-hearted in our devotion to God. We love God. We recognize that God loves us. We have this like really deep, precious, intimate relationship with Jesus. At least we're leaning into that and we want that. And, um, and so it's interesting to think about Gosh, how in the world do we get that? And what's interesting, as a dad on a trip, I know how to get there. It's called a credit card, right? If I want abundance, if I want to sit and enjoy my mango tango and have unlimited tacos and enjoy the sun while all my friends are freezing up here in Marin, I'm praying for you guys, right? If I want that, I know the cost. The cost is simply a credit card. Away you go, and I can experience that abundance. Now, as a dad, I know that that swiping of the credit card actually has a true cost, right? Next week, my bill will come due, and all that abundance, there will be a cost to it, which I'm ready for because I'm a good steward of my money. My kids, on the other hand, have no idea. Right? They have no idea what the cost is. They're just like, this is the best thing ever. I can have whatever I want, whenever I want. And if you ever like raise kids, there's these kind of different versions of parenting, right? When you're little and you take them to Disneyland and they have no idea what anything is, what anything costs. They just love it and they soak it up and you just love being generous to them because they have no idea, right? They have no idea how much that a churro is $35. But you're like, I love it. And you're going to pass it on to them. They love it. But going on a vacation with teenagers is different because you're, you're raising young adults. And you realize, I want my young adult kids to realize that all of this abundance, which is a generous gift from my wife and I, there actually is a cost to it. And we don't want them to be snotty kids. We don't want them to be entitled kids. We don't want them to be like, oh, this taco wasn't good enough. Like, listen, man, get another one, right? We want them to be generous. We want them to realize, oh my goodness, this is an incredible gift. There's an incredible cost. And we want them to be, have gratitude, right? And to enjoy the benefit, but to be, to be grateful and to realize that this abundant gift is designed so that our family would have a memory together, would have an experience together, that our hearts would be drawn together, that our family would like be this, this unit. And if they're snotty kids and miss it, well, then angry dad comes out, right? And you should be proud. My kids, they got it. They, they recognize, probably because we're like, you know how much this costs, kids. Like we're telling them this incredible gift has a cost. Now, the reason why I tell you all that is because that song that we just sang, The Honey and the Rock, the way that we talk here at Marin Covenant all the time about God's goodness, his provision, his abundance, it is so, so good. But what we're going to do during Lent is we're going to take a look at the cross, and the reason why we're going to look at the cross is because the cross is the payment. All of that goodness, 
all of that abundance, all of that forgiveness, all of that mercy, all of that access, all of that isn't just like free. It's free to us, but there was this incredible cost and that cost happened on the cross. And so we're gonna take our entire Lenten series and we're gonna look at what in the world happened on the cross. We're gonna look at Jesus' last statements, the last words of Christ, and see what that has to tell us about the work that Jesus did on the cross and the goodness and grace and what that means for us. And so today we're gonna look at the very first statement found in Matthew 27. It says, my God, my God, excuse me, why have you forsaken me? And we're gonna talk about this morning, how in the world did that get to be good news? So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 27. And we're probably not going to do this um, every week, but since this is the first week of Lent, we're going to give a little bit of context to where we find ourselves. So here we are in Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start in verse 32. This is a little bit of story time, okay? So this is the end of Jesus' ministry, right? He's been arrested, he's been tortured, and now it's the final, it's the end. It's the crucifixion of Jesus. So it says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, where they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Now above his head, they placed the written charges against him. This is Jesus, the king of of the Jews. Now two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who, passed insur- sorry, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, who are you, who, you are, sorry, you who are going to destroy the temple and build in three days? Why don't you save yourself? Come down from that cross if you are the son of God. All right, you just get this scene of this horrible crucifixion. And just not only is it the death brutal, the mocking is brutal. It's just going on and on. Right? He says he saved others, but can he even save himself? He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Just mockery after mockery. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Well, so this is, here we are now in verse 45. So from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And finally, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Gosh, what a brutal scene. It is a horrible scene. And what's so crazy is that this brutal and horrible scene, not only is the physical pain, the physical suffering, the physical death, the mockery of Jesus, not only, I mean, this has become the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The cross has become the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is the payment for all the goodness and abundance. And so we're going to begin looking at a couple different things. And the first thing is we need to understand the cross was always the plan. That there was going to be a time when Jesus was going to usher in his kingdom. And because humans miss it, like we all want to love God. We all trust God. And we always try to make God fit into our image. And the Jewish people were the same way. They knew that there was going to be a Messiah that was going to come and usher in this new kingdom. And they hoped and they longed that this new kingdom was going to be someone like David. Someone like King David, who was the king at the pinnacle of the, of the Israel kingdom, right? And they thought, man, the new Messiah was going to be like that. No longer were they going to be under oppression. They were going to have a kingdom who was going to come and kick out the Romans and establish the true kingdom of God. It was going to be incredible. Now, they were right. There was a Messiah who was going to come, and he was going to come in the line of David, but he wasn't going to come like David came. 
And so what he's, what's interesting is when, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was actually giving an indicator of that the cross was always the plan. What's interesting is um, for all the rabbis, for all the Pharisees and Sadducees, all the people in the crowd, because they don't have TikTok and they don't have Netflix, they actually have space to read and memorize things. They memorized almost all the Psalms and the really smart people memorized all of the Old Testament. And they knew these songs in their head. They knew these scriptures in their head. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just declaring like, God, where, where, I thought it was your guy. I thought I was going to usher in the kingdom. Why are you letting this happen to me? That's not what he's saying at all. He was actually quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a Psalm of David and Jesus quoting it. If the Pharisees and Sadducees, what they knew is they knew, oh my goodness, it wasn't just a verse, but it was like a, a trigger to remind them of this entire Psalm. And we do this all the time, right? We shorthand things. I'll go, oh, you know that, song, that, that verse, John 3, 16. What does that say? John 3, 16, for God the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Whoever believes him will not perish, have eternal life. Oh, it takes forever. But if you go, you know, like John 3.16. Now, if you're really smart, like Jim, right? You go John 3, like, oh, that's actually about Nicodemus. And there's this whole story about Jesus talking with Nicodemus and it, it gives this whole context. But if you want to have a whole conversation, you don't just, you don't have to say the whole thing. You go, you know, like in John 3 or John 3.16, right? Uh, we talk about, oh, you know, the story of the prodigal son, well, if you've been around the church, you know the whole story of the prodigal son. So you can say, you know, like the brother and the prodigal son. And all of a sudden, you know immediately what you're talking about. And then you can go from there. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's in Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately, if you were smart and you were paying attention, you knew, oh my goodness, that is Psalm 22. That's a Psalm of David. It's a lament of David when he was at his lowest point in his life. And he was struggling and he was... Um, suffering, and he, and he just writes this lament. It's his heartbreaking lament. But what's interesting is part of his lament, he actually gives a picture of a crucifixion. And back when uh, David was writing this, they, that wasn't even a thing yet. They didn't even know about that kind of torture yet. Humans weren't that creative. And yet in this Psalm, there is this picture. So here we are in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16. David says this. It says, right, dogs have surrounded me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display and people stare and gloat over me. Right, that passage that I just read, right, that was it. There, people were just gloating over him. They were mocking him. Um, there's other passages of scripture, you know, he was whipped with a cat of nine tails and all of his bones were exposed. His hands were pierced. David, that didn't happen to David physically. He was saying emotionally, this is what it feels like. It says, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Isn't that crazy? And so while who knows what David was exactly thinking, but theologians and Christians have looked back and said, oh my goodness, see, this was a type. David was a type of Messiah, except he wasn't going to be this coming in power Messiah. He was going to be a suffering servant Messiah. And so the cross was always the plan. And these people who knew about Psalm 22 would go, oh my goodness, he is telling us the Psalm of David. And they wanted the new David to come, but this new David was going to be a David that was suffering and that was um, put on display and mocked. But I love it. Listen, this is the very end of verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All will go down to the dust, will kneel before him. If you read, it, it harkens us to uh, Philippians chapter two, right? At the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It says, posterity will serve them. Future generations will be told about the Lord and they will pro proclaim his righteousness, declaring to the people yet unborn, he has done it. It is finished. That's just my little 
um, note in there. But isn't that incredible? And so the idea of the cross is that the cross was always going to be a thing. We want Jesus to come in power. We want Jesus to wrong all the rights. We want Jesus to do his thing. But the reality is, is that the cross was always going to be the way that he was going to do it. Why in the world would he do that? So that's the next question. So the cross is the punishment for our sin. And this is, again, this is, this is where the credit card comes due. So not only was the cross just about empathy, it wasn't just about showing us that Jesus was going to be a suffering servant. There was actually something that had to happen on the cross. You see... We are sinful people. We're rebellious people. And in our context, boy, that does not fly. We are good people. We're beautiful butterflies. Even the awful things we do are part of our character, and you should just love us for that. But the truth is that in our guts, that we are sinful and rebellious people. And that sinfulness and that rebelliousness, it has a price. And I was thinking about this a lot, that in our culture, we actually don't really have a punishment culture, right? Insurance covers it. Um, if someone really wrongs you, we just write them off. We block them. We never have to talk to them again. We never have to see our parents again. Like we just cut people off. We never really deal with punishment. So talking about punishment, it doesn't really fit with our cultural worldview. And because it doesn't fit with our cultural, cultural worldview, what's interesting is we actually don't know where we stand. And by not knowing where you stand, it actually causes more anxiety. It'd be better for someone to go, I am mad at you because blah, blah, blah. You have wronged me because. And they're like, oh, well, now I know what to do about it. Or now I at least understand. And what I love about the cross is a very clear picture that we have sinned and our sin has a real cost. Uh, Romans chapter three, verse 22 says this, that there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. So right out of the gate, this isn't just like, hey, there's some good people and then there's some bad people. No, all human beings, right? So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, there's no difference for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I just love that. There's no one who's better. There's no one, there's no hierarchy. Christians have kind of gotten a bad rap for this. Like, hey, us Christians, we're good people. Everyone else is bad people. No, all human beings have sinned. All of us have and fallen short of the glory of God. And this was so great. And all, not just us good people, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. It makes no sense to us. And we like move, it makes no sense to us. But what's interesting is for all of human history, up until like a hundred years ago, everyone knew that we had a problem with God or the gods. And there would always be some version of sacrifice to make atonement, to make appeasing. Because in our very guts, we know that we desire intimacy with God. And we know that we have a problem with God. And we all have figured out that some sort of human sacrifice or animal sacrifice was the way to do that. And in the Jewish story, God's revealed covenant he said, the way that you're going to do that is through the day of atonement. There's going to be a goat or a sheep, right? There's all of Leviticus. There's all these different versions of culminating on the day of atonement where this one animal was going to cover, take all the sins of God's people as they sent them into the wilderness or they sacrificed him. And Jesus now becomes this sacrifice. So it says, God's presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement. So if you were a Jewish reader, you were like, oh my goodness, we've been doing this atonement thing, the day of atonement for like a thousand years oh, we don't need to do that anymore because Jesus is now the atoning sacrifice through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because God can't just forget it. He can't just like, like sin has to be paid for some way. It doesn't just get absolved. Like that vacation, that credit card payment has to be paid. Someone has to pay that. And so there was a way. So it was actually an, an act of righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. And the one who justifies those who, sorry, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so now our faith in Jesus gives us access to this forgiveness. Now, what's interesting is this punishment that Jesus uh, suffered on the cross was total. And what I love is this, I mean, it doesn't matter how awful of a person you are. Now, you guys are all great people, but you know some really awful people. And uh, because you deserve maybe just a, a timeout probably, but you know people who've done really, really awful things. And the more awful things you've done, you know there's a higher payment that has to be paid. And so the suffering on the cross, like at the time, Jesus suffered basically the ultimate physical suffering that you could suffer. He was tortured, he was mocked, and crucifixion was the known and most brutal form of punishment. It was the most brutal punishment. So it doesn't matter what you've done, right? That punishment, the most severe punishment was what Jesus took so he could take on all of our sin. So it doesn't matter if you're just a white collar criminal or you are just wrecking shop and you're the grossest, worst murderer on the planet. Jesus covers all of that sin. Now, what's incredible is he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most theologians think it's, he didn't just die a physical death, but he actually died the spiritual death. That, that he actually, because God is holy and can have no sin around him, that when Jesus takes on the sin of the world, he actually gets separated from God for the first time in all of eternity. Somehow, in some mysterious way, Jesus is separated from God, not only just emotionally, I mean, not only just physically, but also spiritually. And so I have a couple of quotes uh, from two theologians who kind of give us a good picture of this. One is from Carl Barth and says this, the cry of dereliction is the most profound expression of the mystery of the incarnation. The moment when Jesus fully enters into our human condition and experiences the depth of our separation from God. And I love it because it is a mystery because I spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks going, what does that mean that the Trinity was separated? What does that mean if Jesus is a co-head, you know, part of the Trinity, always existed, always part of the co-head, the, the, always hard part of the Godhead to be separated from God? Where did he go? What does that look like? I mean, my brain just got like melted. I have no idea. And so what a freedom to just go, gosh, it's a mystery. We don't have to own, I don't have to understand all the things, but somehow Jesus in the presence of God and Jesus somehow got separated because of our sin. It's a mystery of the incarnation. And what I love it is the moment when Jesus fully enters into our human condition and experiences the depth of our separation from God. What I love about Jesus, who's fully God and fully human, he made a way for every single one of us to have an empathetic experience with us. There's not one feeling or experience that you've had that Jesus himself has not had. So you feel separated from God. You feel alone from God. You feel like you've gone way too far from God. You feel like you're being punished by God. I mean, whatever the feeling is, Jesus entered the full experience for us. And it's a mystery. There's this uh, theologian, Donald McLeod, McLeod. He's Scottish. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, but he says this, this is, I think is fascinating too. The, the cry of dereliction is a necessary part of the divine drama of redemption. It's necessary. So not only the physical, the physical separation, but the spiritual separation is necessary. It shows us the depth of God's love and the cost of our sin. And it assures us that Jesus has truly taken on our humanity and suffered in our place. And what I love about this is because I think my sin's not that bad. I have like average sin. And what is incredible is the story of the cross, the story of Jesus being separated from God physically and spiritually means 
my sin actually is that bad. Even though I've justified it in a thousand ways, my sin is that bad. Your sin is that bad. And we need to actually own that our sin causes real death and destruction. And there's a real payment. And we understand, oh my goodness, that is the cost of my sin. All of a sudden, man, maybe I don't want to sin as much. Maybe I need to pay attention to my sin, to my rebellion, because it does matter. And so while on one hand, it, it, it shows the cost, it also shows the love of God, that Jesus did not leave us in our sin. He did not let us run wild in our sin. He didn't just say, well, you're all going to have to just deal with the justice of it. That Jesus said, I'm going to find a way so that I will take the punishment of it fully. And it's motivated all by love. All the passages of scripture are that this movement of God, the ultimate work on the cross is motivated by love. So we see that the, that the cross was always part of the plan. We see that the cross was part of the punishment of sin. And we're going to see in a second is that the cross was also part of the rescuing. Um, sorry, part of the ransom uh, was, you'll see in a second. Gosh, I'm still in vacation mode. I'm just like, so, but th- let me just, before we get there, let's just look, go back to Matthew 27. It says this, that when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he then gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so this, this punishment that Jesus t- takes on, this mysterious thing that happens, when he gives up his spirit, something incredible happens. The curtain is torn in two. And so this is the last part, right? That the cross, sorry, this, here it is, was the ransom for our lives. So it was the punishment for our sins, but it was also the ransom for our lives. Um, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life of a ransom for many. This giving of his life not only paid the punishment of sin, I love this picture, it was, it's a ransom. And this isn't quite the best like, illustration, like A exactly equals B, but it, it, it makes sense to me. It gives at least a, 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 the visceral feeling of it. Um, a good friend of mine, Eric, um, and his wife, Jessica, they couldn't have kids. And, um, and so they realized, oh my goodness, we can't have kids, so what are we going to do? And part of their um, realization was, gosh, maybe God is inviting us to adopt and as they thought about the adoption journey and the adoption story, um, they realized that, man, we, they, found, they found this organization. You know how God, like every adoption story is incredible. It's always like God handpicks like this story for them. And God brought them to this organization, to this orphanage. And they found this young girl, Noe, in South Africa. She's five years old. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is our daughter. Like, this is the person that you have given to us to adopt. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is the best and this is why it's a ransom, because this is a sidebar. This isn't me preaching. This is just, it is wrong, our adoption world and how it works. Because they go, here's this girl in South Africa who has a blanket to her name, and she's supposed to be our, doctor, our daughter. And like, great, you just need to come up with $48,000. You come up with $48,000, she's yours. It's not exactly right that there's fees and however it works. But gosh, from the outside, that's how it feels, Right. Here's this young girl who has no family, who has no life, who has a blanket to her name. And here's a family who's like, we want her to be our daughter. And the way to do it, unfortunately, in our system, however broken it is, is, well, you have to spend $48,000. And because they're part of this incredible Christian community, they raise it like that. But it was a ransom. They paid that $48,000 and they grabbed that girl. She had no idea who they were. She had no idea what $48,000 was. She had no idea of the cost. All of a sudden, she went from living um, in an orphanage in South Africa to the freezing cold of Minnesota in like one day. New life, right? 
incredible. But that's what it is. Jesus, the work on the cross, he not only punishes, he takes care of all the punishment for our sin, he ransomed us. Because if we're honest, we are all in an orphanage. We're made in the image of God. We know we desire family. We know we desire to have intimacy with God. We know that that's how God longs for us to be. But without Jesus, we are just in an orphanage, scraping by, beating up other kids, trying to get more food. But Jesus goes, well, I want you. I want you. And that $48,000, that infinite amount of money, whatever that costs, Jesus says, I'm going to pay that price so that you no longer have to be an orphan, but you get to be my precious daughter, my precious son, and to be adopted into the family. And we have no idea what that cost is, except now that Noe's a teenager and she's growing up and she's getting ready to go to college and figuring out those things, all of a sudden, oh, I understand what $48,000 means, right? And what's so fun is as you mature and realize what the cost is, all of a sudden you grow in gratitude and affection and go, gosh, I want to be that kind of person. I want to extend that kind of grace and mercy and generosity to, to those around me the way that it's happened to me. Just like with my kids in the vacation. Oh, this vacation is not a free thing. It costs money. It's designed for this purpose. Oh, I want gratitude and I want my kids to be generous with all that they've had as well. And so what do we do with all this? The whole point of the cross, the reason why the cross is good news, it's an anathema to our culture, right? Because it says you are a sinful person. You are a rebellious person. In fact, you are so sinful and rebellious. It it takes a brutal death, a total death of physical punishment, of spiritual separation. That's the penalty. You are so far and estranged from God that you have to be ransomed back. Gosh, that does not fit in Marin culture because we are good, beautiful, awesome people who just occasionally screw up. But if we can actually just embrace, we're rebels, we're punks. And even in our rebelliousness and punkness, Jesus is like, oh, I love you. I want you to be with me. I'm going to cover all that. And we don't need to be scared of our sin. We don't need to be ashamed of our sin. We actually have freedom now to be God's people, to be generous, to recognize all of God's goodness and graces that's been extended to us. We now get to extend to other people. I love this passage in 1 John chapter 2. It says this, my dear children. What an incredible just posture. My dear children, right? He doesn't say you punks. You spoiled kids. You entitled teenagers. That's how I would start my letter all the time. No, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the Father and Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Yeah. I love that because there is no place in here for self-righteousness. There's no place in here for entitlement. There's no place for being judgmental at all. We are recipients of this incredible gift. And this gift is actually designed for the whole world. And the more that we fall in love with Christ, the more we recognize God's goodness, the more we want to extend that grace to others. Not that judgment to others, the grace to others. So here's the last little thing. Um, every sermon at the end of it, all of our time, we're going to just want to pay attention and think about what is one spiritual practice that we can do this week that'll help us embrace this good news. And so the, the spiritual practice for this week is to memorize one verse. So take a picture of this verse, Mark chapter one, verse 15 says this, the time has come. He said that the kingdom of God has come near to repent and to believe the good news. And Jeff talked about this on Ash Wednesday. And that this is, this is it. This is the, the centerpiece 
of the Christian life. Since the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is here among us. And so how do we actually maximize that more and more is that we repent and we believe the good news. And what's so funny is repent has such a bad name. I remember it was a couple of months ago, I guess, Jeff, right? You talked about the, the street preacher with the repent and believe. And we're like, we just like, we have like, all oh, we are just triggered by it. Like we're like kids about it. Like, oh, what do we do with that? No, we repent and we believe. And we can do that because we're forgiven. And so what a, what a gift it is if we think every day to wake up in the morning and recite this verse, that the kingdom of God has drawn near. To repent and to believe the good news. And what does repenting mean? Repenting just means in my normal guts, I'm going this way. I do what I want. I'm being just a rebellious punk doing whatever I want. Repenting is just simply going, oh, I'm going to turn back towards God. That's it. God, I was going my way. Repenting is now I'm going to go your way. I'm going to believe the good news. And what is the good news? Oh my goodness, that you are loved. You know it's true. In your very guts, you want to be loved. You just don't know if you are. But the good news of the cross is that you are loved, that your, your punishment has been paid. You've been ransomed. You've been adopted. You don't have to fight other kids for scraps anymore. You get to sit at the banquet table as a precious daughter, as a precious son, with all of the rights and soon as you mature with all the responsibilities to not just be co-heirs, but to be partners with God, with the ever-expanding kingdom of God. Oh, that's the good news. That's where, that's where all of life is. And repenting is just going, gosh, I was fighting this person for scraps. Oh, I don't want to fight this person for scraps. I want to be reminded that I'm God's person. I'm God's son. I'm God's daughter. And I'm about to be about God's thing, to believe the good news. Well, that's where we're going to end today. So let me pray for us and for our time. We'll spend a little time in worship. And we got five, yeah, five more weeks of this, just getting after the cross. It's so good. And, uh, and so I hope that you uh, don't get too startled because it is a different uh, vibe from our normal uh, Marin life. But I hope that you find freedom and joy in God's love and his abundance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, gosh, that is what you are. You're not this angry God. You're not an upset God. You're not an exasperated God, but you are a generous God who loves us so much. And while we were, while we were sinners, while we were running so far away from you, while we were hurting ourselves and others in the world, it was at that moment that you provided a rescuer. You provided the Messiah, the true King, not like King David, but the king who is going to suffer and ultimately pay the punishment for our sins, who's going to ransom us so we would no longer be orphans, but that we'd be your precious daughter and your precious son. And so I pray that we'd find freedom and hope in the spiritual discipline of repenting, of throwing off the things that are not bringing us life, that are opposed to you and to your kingdom, to not feel any sense of judgment or shame, but to feel a sense of freedom because you love us and have set us free. And so this morning, as an act of faith, we repent, we turn our backs on the sinfulness and rebelliousness of our natural state and accept the goodness of your good news 
to have our identity found in you, our purpose found in you. And I pray that you would activate us individually and corporately, that we would be bearers of your good news, that we would bring grace and mercy and abundance to everyone we come in contact with, and we would proclaim your grace and mercy over them. And all this would be for the glory of your son, Jesus, who paid the incredible price for our sake. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship.